you know, the, the Christian virtues of love, kindness, gentleness, self-control, there's a conflict there with a kind of rugged, militant masculinity with militarism. And so, again, no surprise that they would find these heroes outside of their faith tradition, men like Donald Trump even. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack, director, and today we're continuing our Search for Meaning series. And we're examining the benefits and failures of mainstream religion in America. Today, it's the turn of the white evangelical church to go under the microscope. Our guest speaker is Dr. Kristen DeMay, whose book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, Demay is a professor of history at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and she'll be joined by two great thinkers and historians of religion. John Butler is Professor Emeritus of American Studies, History and Religious Studies at Yale. His latest book is God in Gotham, The Miracle of Religion in Modern Manhattan. Dr. Jamar Tisby is an author and historian and an expert on the Black Evangelical Church. He's written the New York Times bestseller, A Color of Compromise, and his second book, How to Fight Racism, was published on January the 5th, the day before the insurrection in DC. So welcome to you all. So let's kick off. Jesus and John Wayne, uh, an unexpected bestseller, Demay diligently traces how over several decades, a militant ideal of white Christian manhood has come to pervade evangelical popular culture in the United States. She delves into the hypocrisy and disconnect between purported Christian ethics and the rise of sexual abuse, corruption, and scandal within the evangelical church. Her research shows how American evangelicals have replaced the idea of Jesus of the gospels with an idol of rugged, militant Christian masculinity. As one chaplain puts it, a spiritual badass. This shift culminated in the hero worship of Trump, who embodied the idea of protector and warrior, even if by doing this, it meant that many followers betrayed their own moral values. So John, welcome, let's start with you. You said you were blown away by the research in Kristen's book, that there had always been evangelical crackpots, but after reading the book, you realized that this was not a peripheral thing, but central to the church. That's right. When I first got the book, I thought, wow, what a title. And um, I started reading it all. By the time I was on page 10, I thought, oh, you know, this is not your standard account of the nature of evangelicalism. It's not your standard account of much that we say about American religion. And why, so the book is important for two things. One is it's really bracing account of evangelicals and the presidential election that Donald Trump narrowly won. But it's also for people like me and for people who think about post-World War II evangelicalism generally, which means born again American Protestantism. That's, that's, what, that's the big thing about evangelicals. We've generally thought of them as somewhat Jerry Falwell and others aside. We've generally thought of them as quiet, positive, largely positive, sweet, whatever. And, you know, here's a book about, look at the title, Jesus and John Wayne. 
what's John Wayne doing in this in this history? Well, you're right. The way you described it is absolutely correct. It's a book about macho behavior. It's a book about men. It's a book about male authority and the suppression of the role of women in uh, significant roles in many evangelical congregations. It's a book about race prejudice. We've sometimes we keep forgetting that Jerry Falwell used to be once gave a sermon, big sermon on segregation forever. And uh, he criticized Christian ministers, white or black, who were agitating for civil rights. And they, this came out of his born again views. So this, this is why, and what, what she really describes is, is a movement that in which this is of primary importance. And that's why she says at the end, evangelicals didn't betray their faith. They really fulfilled it by voting for Donald Trump. And that, of course, has set people off many, <laughs> you, can read, you can well imagine that not everybody is happy about this particular, about, about Kristen's point of view. So for people that aren't within that church and aren't knowledgeable about the ins and outs, from the outside, you know, they purport to be moral Christians. So I could never square, and I don't think a lot of people could, Trump's appalling behavior and language with him being some kind of representative of good living and vote for him. This is something I can't really understand, John. Well, it is hard to understand, but as Kristen describes, evangelicals, particularly male evangelicals, have long been fascinated by macho behavior. That's why they were very early taken by John Wayne. And John Wayne was, was Donald Trump, the, the younger Donald Trump. You know, there's nothing in John Wayne's life that was much different than Trump's life. Women, money, questionable behavior, race prejudice. He openly said that he believed in white supremacy. You know, Trump won't actually say that, whatever, but he acts it out, okay? But John Wayne, well, what even, why would an evangelical be, they just pass that by? And there's something else here, and that is that there is a strain within evangelicalism that says that, well, we're all imperfect. We all are, we are imperfect beings. And God sometimes chooses, God has to choose. God doesn't have any choice. God has to choose imperfect beings to, to forward true principles. So the people who forward these principles are themselves wounded, imperfect. Maybe they're even disgusting. But they forward these views. And what views do they want? They want militarism. They, they want dominance of men. They, they want white, a white society. Well, <laughs> the, that, that's, so therefore, excusing Trump is, isn't much different than excusing John Wayne. Or think of it differently. A whole series of major evangelical male figures were accused rightly so, demonstrably so, of sexual harassment and behavior, having relationships with people outside their own marriage. And one evangelical leader after another passed that by. Some of them, one of them volunteered to preach in the, in the church of one of the accused ministers, uh, and that is John Piper, who happens to be from Minneapolis, where I live. 
you know, and without and without the slightest bit of shame. So they passed this. So when the when this famous tapes came out about about Trump's conversation on the bus, you know, whatever. So you know, you could evangelicals could, could really say, well, so what? You know, it's just more talk, and we they've already they they already passed by on the behavior. So they there it's a strained capacity. Okay, so just looking at the political spectrum for a moment, we went from having a very educated, truly Christian man in the White House, Obama, from him to Trump. Now, a lot of people in the rest of the world said, how was that possible? Weren't we on a positive trajectory? Weren't we progressing as a nation? And then we took this enormous jump back. Is that how you see it? You know, the way you, the way you put it is interesting because many evangelicals never accepted the notion that Barack Obama was a true educated Christian. Many evangelicals stuck with the notion that he was really a Muslim in disguise. Mm. And they just, they, that, that's a standard fare in many both right-wing and certain evangelical circles, and they couldn't get that out of their system. So also remember the, if I may say, the job that was done on Obama by right-wing, often evangelical speakers over eight long years of undermining the authority of this black president consistently. You know, Mitch McConnell said it was his task to destroy the Obama presidency. Well, he was speaking from a political point of view. These other people, many evangelical, too many evangelicals are speaking from a religious point of view. They needed, they really needed to get him out. And they organized, they campaigned, some quietly, some vociferously. And that helps explain why it is you had this giant block of voters, religiously inclined, who are going to flock to the polls in 2016 and vote for Donald Trump, even though he was a damaged man, but he, he forwarded God's right view of the world. Okay, Kristen, thank you for writing such a brave book. I say this because you are a Christian and the daughter of a reformed Christian minister yourself. So you're not going to win any converts to the church with this book, are you? Um, so why was it so important for you to write the truth rather than protect the brand? Yes. You know, I, I didn't set out to write this book to win converts to anything. Uh, I didn't um, have any thoughts really about protecting the brand. I am a Christian. Um, I've always had kind of one foot in the evangelical world and one foot out um, because I'm, I'm part of a Dutch immigrant family tradition. And so, so I've, I've kind of been immersed in the popular culture of evangelicalism, listening to Christian music, shopping in Christian bookstores growing up. Uh, but I still had a kind of independent perspective as well. So I'm, I'm kind of on the, the edges there. Uh, but more importantly, I wrote this book as a work of history. And I really wanted to get the story right. <laughs> That's what I was after. I didn't give much thought to whether people would like evangelicals more or less, that really didn't enter into, into my thinking at all. Uh, more importantly though, I would say that as a Christian, 
I think that truth is important. And I have great confidence that that's the best way to protect the brand is not covering things up. It's being honest. It's being transparent. It's owning our own faults. And it's, um, again, getting the story right. So I didn't actually think I was being all that brave when I wrote this book. I've been told uh, by more than one person, you know, you are so brave because you named names. And that struck me as a very odd comment because again, I'm a historian. I don't know how you write history if you don't name names. <laughs> and at the same time, I will say that um, I would push back a little bit against the, the idea out there, maybe that you know, you're not going to win any converts um, <laughs> through this book because unexpectedly, the book has uh, received an enormously positive reception among many white evangelicals, including conservative white evangelicals who see the truth as in it. And I've heard from hundreds, actually probably thousands by now, who have written to me, who have reached out to me and have thanked me for helping them to see what they have been a part of, many of them confessing their complicity in this, and several of them also saying that in some ways this saved their faith by being able to name this and by being able to have somebody who is a Christian call this out as well. So this concept of rugged Christian masculinity and nationalism, as you mentioned, and you talk about Theodore Roosevelt's ideas, it's uh, not new, but it's not biblical, is it? Well, it depends which part of the Bible you want to, to look, look at, I suppose, right? You can find, you know, Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. You can find some militant imagery in the book of Revelation. And I know this because the people I write about, these are their favorite passages. But you also find a lot of teachings in the scriptures that undercut this sort of militancy, right? The, the idea of uh, loving your neighbor as yourself and uh, loving your enemies even turning the other cheek, the whole, the whole kind of model of Jesus Christ in the New Testament of, of really a model that is countercultural. He wasn't the Messiah that his followers had expected to, to him to be, right? He wasn't going to lead them into their, uh, in, in their battles. Instead, he was the suffering servant. He divested himself of power. So as I understand Christianity, again, you can look to the Bible and you can find a, a lot of different stories there. There's a lot of different verses in the Bible that you can kind of pick and choose from, but the overarching theme, as I understand it, is one that is, um, is really kind of countercultural and one of, of not grasping for power, not this kind of coercive power, but one of divesting of power. And that's certainly gave me a kind of critical frame where I could, I could, you know, hold up and critique this kind of ideology that ended up embracing a lot of bringing in a lot of cultural ideals, a lot of secular ideals, right? It's no coincidence that evangelicals, when they were looking to find heroes, uh, that they looked to uh, men who were not shaped by traditional Christian virtues, right? To men like John Wayne, I could just as easily have called this book Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart, right? That, I, really, I really tried to find a way to make that fit in a title. Uh, but they were looking outside of Christian tradition because they were, they, um, you know, the, the Christian virtues of love, joy, peace, patience, 
kindness, gentleness, self-control, there's a conflict there with a kind of rugged militant masculinity with militarism. And so again, no surprise that they would find these heroes outside of their faith tradition, men like Donald Trump even, and then hold them up as these are the men that God has especially equipped to do what needs to be done. And they can be ruthless for the sake of righteousness. Okay, so I am going to come to Jamal. Um, Thomas Kidd, who is a historian at Baylor University, said, in American pop culture parlance, evangelical now basically means whites who consider themselves religious and who vote Republican. Jamal, as a religious scholar and a black social activist, how do you react to this definition? Is it accurate? I think it's largely accurate and it's not new. I think I would agree with Dr. Dume going all the way back to the 40s and the 50s, uh, the rise of the, the Cold War and anti-communism. You really had the beginnings of this modern coalescing between a religious expression we call evangelicalism and right-leaning or, or even far-right political ideologies. I, I do think it's important to, to mention that evangelical has very different meanings in different contexts, particularly outside of the United States. So uh, as I correspond with Christians in Central and South America, evangelical has a very different history and connotation and even political uh, definition, uh, namely because of some contrast with Catholicism and the, and the history there. So, so when we are having this conversation, I think while in some senses evangelicalism and certainly Christianity is a global project for sure, there's a lot that is, that is very specific to the U.S. context. And so going back to the original definition, this coalescing, this alignment has been happening for decades. And I think what Trump did was not create much new, but highlight what was there in, in sort of undeniable terms, because you really did have very clear choices, right? Whether Democrat or Republican, whether for Trump or for someone else, and once those, you know, very clear binary choices emerged and you saw in 2016, for instance, four out of five people who self-identified as white evangelicals and who voted pulling the lever for Trump, then you have a pretty clear picture of where people stand, what they stand for. And I think that was sort of the lightning in a bottle that Dr. Dumais' book captured She's just being a faithful historian and has incredibly uh, perceptive insights about uh, continuity and discontinuity and linking the pieces together. But I think for a lot of people, what it did was help them make sense of how could people who were so were trumpeting moral values and ethics so much vote for a man like Trump, who, who pretty much exhibited the opposite of everything they claimed to cherish. And so I think she was able to link the pieces together in such a way and at such a moment that it helped people realize, oh, this isn't actually a departure from what they said or practiced. This is actually the fulfillment of it. So it's um, a pretty depressing indictment of uh, evangelical religion here in the United States, uh, which sounds like a political outfit, really, at best. Do you think the answer for black Christians, unfortunately, is to really seeking change to remain within their black church communities? Is it safer than hoping to have an integrated vision? I mean, the church you, you attend, for example, it's probably 90 percent black, correct? 
a lot of people would assume that it's not. And it's so funny to me when, cause I, I am full throated in my critiques of what evangelicalism has become. And yet I still maintain spiritual community with some who could be characterized as, as white evangelicals. I'm having conversations about mask wearing and vaccines and whether to trust the science. Like I'm immersed in it, even as I study it as an academic and a historian. So as far as black Christians, we've seen this for centuries. One of the things I write in my first book, The Color of Compromise, there would be no black church without racism in the white church. Uh, you can go all the way back to Frederick Douglass and saying, you know, uh, between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I see the widest possible difference, right? This is not new. And uh, as, as Dr. Dumay mentioned, there's a whole bunch of patriarchy and toxic masculinity wrapped up in this. There's a whole lot of racism and white supremacy there, too. I would argue that's, you know, one of the foundational cornerstone ideologies of what evangelicalism has become or what we would characterize as white Christian nationalism. So we've seen this up close and from afar. We've had to form our own churches, our own religious spaces as a result of it. I would say what we're seeing now is probably since about the early 90s, you had this sort of racial reconciliation movement, uh, which was also very masculine and male centric. But you had, you know, folks, black folks in earnest entering into predominantly white spaces, a lot of times because of resources, right? Like they had the programs, they had the money, they had the institutions. We entered into these spaces in good faith, believing what people said about equality and diversity and uh, integration. And I think what has happened, that, that, that grew for a while, I'd say up until the early 2010s. And then what you get is Black people, unarmed Black people getting murdered and it's being caught on cell phone video. And you have the advent of something like Black Lives Matter. And then you have this huge rift of people who look at incidents of, of Black people getting killed. And they say, well, either they deserved it or that's an isolated incident. It's one bad apple. And Black people are like, no, 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 no. This has been going on for a really long time. And we need to do something about it. And what we saw in Christian spaces was this reticence and even opposition to move toward racial justice. And uh, as Dr. Dumay said, you know, nine times out of 10, if not 99 out of 100, when you kick against the goad in these white Christian institutions, more often than not, the people who are raising their voice in protest and, and, and uh, in support of justice are the ones who end up getting ostracized and pushed out. And that's honestly, you know, a large part of my own story and background. I'm aware that we're getting lots of questions it's only fair to include. So the book shows how successive popular visions of Christian masculinity have been used to advance a specific political ideology, especially in white evangelical circles. One, what is the right view that Christian men should have of themselves? And two, how has the black view of Christian masculinity differed from the white view? Some of the voices in black circles say the same things as the white ones, question mark. Yes. So <laughs> the right view, whatever Jesus did, uh, is a good way to do it. I do think as we look at things like the fruit of the spirit, which was mentioned earlier, you know, what are the characteristics of all people, right? Uh, love, joy, and peace, and patience, kindness, and gentleness, and self-control, and all of those things are good for, for men and women. 
but I think also we also we need to be aware that we live in a historically patriarchal society. And so then it comes down to what does equity look like? How do men actively promote and make space in the world uh, that has been taken up too often by men? How do we how do we how do we make sure that women can flourish and we don't get in the way of that? Those are the kinds of questions I think about and, and try to follow the example of others there. This issue of patriarchy and misogyny certainly doesn't stop with white men. The black church has lots of issues around these, these types of problems, uh, whether that is sexual assault and sexual abuse in churches, whether that is relegating women to certain roles in the church. So yes, it, it certainly spans across traditions and across races for sure. I would simply say that particularly in the U.S. context, this connection between patriarchy and misogyny and race has, has always been there as well. So, you know, the plantation system was based on a patriarchal system and a paternalistic system where the plantation owner, the white male plantation owner, viewed himself as sort of the, the father figure, not only for his white biological family, but for the people he enslaved as well and treated enslaved people as essentially perpetual children. And so uh, taking this, this, you know, I must be in control kind of role has long been there and it's, and it's long fallen along racial lines. I think there's also historical racial trauma that black people have taken on. And, you know, the phrase is hurt people, hurt people. And so to the extent that we see some of these same patterns within black churches and black communities, this is not to excuse it in any, any way, but to have experienced, you know, black men being quote unquote studs to impregnate black women, to have seen black women being wantonly raped in order to increase the enslaved population, having seen children ripped away from parents, all of that is going to have ongoing generational effects. Okay, this is a Jude Nixon has said, Kristen or anybody else, I live in Boston, but my center left Baptist church in Michigan actually changed its name to disassociate itself from evangelicals. Are any of you seeing similar moves? Oh, absolutely. That's a trend, right? Uh, Because this particular strand of white evangelicalism has been exported and is taking hold globally um, and being put to um, political ends, often authoritarianism as well. And so that's that's another dynamic going on here. But um, yes, domestically here too, the, the term evangelical, it, it changes over time. I've, I've actually done some linguistic studies. We saw how the, the term itself is morphing in real time and particularly since the 1970s now. So there are different approaches you can take. Many evangelicals like to say, we're going to fight for that original meaning, whatever their ideal form of evangelical is. And it's always this theological construct. And it's always very much the kind of best face forward. For me as a cultural historian, right, that's, that's not a game that, that I want to play. I want to look at what does evangelical mean in any given historical moment? And what does it mean to those who are practicing? And and yes, what does this term mean? And, and we're seeing just again in the last five years, 
evangelicalism, uh, the, the people who are identifying as evangelical are shifting according to how they understand the term. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways, because now we have many people who are identifying with this conservative right, patriarchal, Trump-supporting, um, essentially white Republican ideal, that's what it means to them to be evangelicals. That's what they're identifying with. And so for other people who have long wanted to claim um, a different sense of evangelicalism, it's about a born-again experience. It's about the authorities, uh, the authority of the scriptures, right? It's about acting out of your, your faith beliefs and stuff. I think many of them are just saying, we tried. We tried hard. Um, it's not communicating anymore. And so we need a different label because we don't want to send the message that we are this thing when we are actually something else entirely. Okay, so I'm going to thank Kristen DeMay, John Butler, and Jamar Tisby for making the time. I thank you all. Cambridge Forum is made possible by Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Mass Cultural Council, the City of Cambridge, and you all. So don't forget to donate. Go to the website www.cambridgeforum.org where you'll find a podcast of this program and lots of other forums. You'll also find details of upcoming programs and past programs. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.